This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here at the desk in New York, Matt Myers, MLB.com National Editor. Matt, hello. Mike, how are you? We are, what, three weeks or so into the season? Give or take. Data is just piling in, and I'm, I am I'm, I know you're excited. I'm very excited. Last night, we set a StatCast record, and I you know, I know it's only going back to last year, but it was a really impressive record. Uh, why don't you want to tell us about it? I know you're so excited about this. Let, uh, let me set the scene. Uh, I'm at home with my wife. We're watching Better Call Saul. Hey, I just, was also watching. Just be relaxing, and I see an email come through, and the subject line is 105.5 miles per hour, exclamation point. I was obviously very excited, intrigued. Read the email, I see that Aaron Hicks has been tracked on a throw from the outfield, uh, 105 miles an hour, to throw out Danny Valencia at the plate. And I said, you know, to my wife, I said, you know, it was like the bat signal had gone up. I was like, you know, we have, we got to pause this. I've got to share this, share, share this, <laughs> this news with the world. So quickly got a story up on uh, MLB.com, StatCast clip came in. Um, obviously, uh, it made a, a lot of noise around the, the baseball sphere. Very exciting. An amazing throw. Beating the previous record uh, for StatCast, which was 103.1 miles per hour by Carlos Gomez last September. Yeah, as I joked, uh, you know, there are certain numbers now that I've said so often in so many places that they're just ingrained into my head. And Carlos Gomez, 103.1 was one of them. And so now I guess got to erase that. And it's all about Aaron Hicks. And, you know, I don't think this comes out of nowhere. Aaron Hicks did hit 102 miles an hour last year. He actually hit 103. 103 <laughs> miles an hour last year. Well, he, had the yeah. second, he had the second hardest throw we tracked last year. Granted, Gomez threw out a guy at the plate on his, whereas Higgs uh, airmailed. But as I remember, he was flat-footed on that. He did not have a head of steam. And last night, earlier in the inning uh, against the Yankees, he'd hit like 99 trying to throw someone out at the plate. Um, Aaron Hicks also, when he was drafted coming out of high school, uh, hit 97 as a pitcher. And some teams preferred him. He was a first-round pick, and some teams actually preferred him as a, as a pitcher. So he could have gone as a pitcher. Long way of saying the arm strength is real, as we've seen um, before – uh, for those who follow the podcast or read MLB.com, Casey Weathers, uh, Indians pitcher, pitcher who was a big prospect a few years back and is trying to make it back. Uh, we've seen video of him throwing 108 with a running start. It just kind of shows you uh, when you have the full crow's hop, the full your full body weight behind you with a couple of steps, how much extra zip you can get on the throw. Are you, uh, like, I'm dying for, I don't know, let's say it's June, let's say there's a 17-inning game in New York, the Yankees have to put Araldis Chapman in the outfield, and he gets a running start. I want to see that more than anything. I want to see what he can get up. I mean, he once hit 105.1 off the mound, so you'd have to think he could probably get, you know, definitely past 110 and maybe up to, you know, 112, 113. I don't think we're ever going to see that, Probably, Probably not, but it was a, uh, for the StatCast, uh, StatCast devotees last night was a, was an exciting night, and uh, that story has uh, been uh, getting a lot of clicks all day today. Good for us. Good yes. for us. Uh, speaking of things we talk about a lot, we're going to do a barrel update. We love talking about barrels. 100 miles an hour batted ball between 10 and 30 degrees launch angle. I think it was uh, the league hit 802 on that last year. Yes, yeah, I mean like it's it's, the, it's a it's, it's a good proxy for a hard hit line drive. Um, that in the low end would be an extra base hit, on the high end, a home run. 
the two leaders in that right now are from the same team, and I don't think you would expect either one of those names at the top of the list, because one is their five foot six inch second baseman, Jose Altuve, who's been crushing the ball, and one is their rookie first baseman, Tyler White, who didn't really have a job until he came into spring training and beat out A.J. Reed for that job. Yeah, two guys who have won uh, AL Player of the Week uh, the first two weeks of the season. Um, and are keep, I mean, the Astros are struggling. and The Astros are 5-10 and 10 right if now. Not, if not for those two guys, no, I don't know where they'd be. The Astros lead. They have 52 barrels. They have 15% of all their batted balls are barrels. They are really hitting the ball hard. They, they When they hit it, they have the highest strikeout percentage, so that plays into it. But I think, I think you're right. Their issues are on the pitching staff right now. Dallas Keuchel's velocity is down. Uh, some of the other guys just haven't been haven't been succeeding well. But you look at Altuve, you look at White, crushing baseballs. Yeah, I mean, Altuve in particular um, surprises me just because you know, you know he's a good hitter, but you expect him to be a hitter more in the, you know, just line drives for singles kind of way. I mean, like, for example, another player like Buster Posey is a, you know, a high average hitter who hits doubles and home runs, but his exit velocity does not blow you away. It's more just he consistently makes nice contact. So it's like to see Altuve regularly getting above 100 miles per hour on exit velocity is surprising and impressive considering his size. Now, wait, stop. I have to toot my own horn for a minute here. We were watching uh, the Cardinals-Cubs game together the other night. And I, Randall Grichik comes up, and I said, Randall Grichik's going to pull this ball because Randall Grichik pulls all the balls. Last year, uh, as far as right-handed hitter goes, he had the highest ground ball pull percentage, almost 84%, and he did. And he pulled it through the shift on the left-hand side, and I was so excited about that. But it was interesting because we saw that he was shifted, and that's a brand-new thing for Randall Grichik. And we've been able to use StatCast to kind of look at this and show where the second baseman is actually lining up on the shortstop side. didn't happen almost at all last year. And it's one of the things that we're seeing more of um, in terms of the uh – the shift, the evolution of the shift is now we're seeing more and more right-handed pull hitters get shifted. Because it was always a little bit awkward because you'd end up, you know, you wouldn't know whether how far you should move the first baseman over. It was always natural to shift left-handed hitters because the first baseman could basically stay where he was. Right. Um, but now we're seeing, um, you know, I remember seeing it for the first time with Pujols a few years ago where basically teams realized when he hits ground balls, he only hits them to the left side, and he started to get shifted. You're seeing it more and more, and Grichik is now a perfect example. Yeah, Grichik's first partial year, he was shifted 4% of the time he hit the ball. Uh, last year, 7% of the time. This year, up until the other day, 63% of the time. So I think the, the word is out on Randall Grichik. When he hits the ball, he's going to hit it to the left side. Yeah, and I mean, when you consider the, the exit velocity that he hits it with, which we know he's one of, among the leaders, that you want, you need a position. If you want to stop him, you got to position well against him. Right. So in a couple minutes, we're going to get to a really interesting guest. We're going to have Russell Cartland of Baseball Prospectus, who wrote uh, a lot about exit velocity and how many balls in play you really need to get that stat to stabilize, which is another way of saying when can you put some faith into it actually being reliable for guys. But first, I feel like we need to touch on two very similar conversations that are dominating baseball over the last couple of days, uh, and they're they're very similar. The first one is Bryce Harper better than Mike Trout. All right. And that's, that's crazy to think about. Mike Trout is one of the most historic players we're probably ever going to see. I said on this podcast last year that, you know, forget the 10-year rule. I would vote for him for the Hall of Fame right now if he never, ever played again. And I, I think a lot of people actually agree with that. But you look at the last calendar year, Mike Trout, 167, weighted runs created plus. The 100 is average. That's really, really good. Bryce Harper, 203, weighted runs created plus. He's got more homers. He's got an equal strikeout to walk rate, whereas Mike Trout strikes out a lot more than he walks. Uh, as Dave Cameron wrote about Harper the other day, he now has the strength of Chris Davis and the plate discipline of Joey Votto, which is like the perfect ball player. Is it yeah, too soon to talk about yeah, yeah, I don't want to get into it. It's kind of crazy because someone put up, like I saw someone put up a, one of those Twitter polls last week that asked that question. And this is literally a week ago. And I voted for Mike. Like, who would you ha- rather have? And I voted for Mike Trout. Of course. And like, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the what have you done for me lately, but a week later, now I'm kind of like, 
I'm pretty sure like two minutes before we sat down and did this podcast, Bryce Harper homered. He did. Um, I, I, now I'm, I'm sort of rethinking uh, my stance on the matter because Bryce Harper has seemed to have found a new level this year. It's unbelievable. I remember 13 months ago, he was the back-to-back winner of a Sports Illustrated poll naming him the most overrated player in baseball. And uh, I don't think that that would sustain if we were able to do that right now. No, and it's funny because I, I was thinking before the show that I, I sort of fear that Mike Trout is going to become underrated soon because his entire career, he's been viewed in the prism of Bryce Harper, right? In the first few years of his career, he was clearly the superior player. I mean, the crazy thing about Mike Trout, he's been in the league four full seasons. He's finished, his MVP finishes in the American League. Second, first, second, second. Oh, no, wait, sorry, second, second, first, second. He's already underrated. He, should, so he but, should have four MVPs. So that's what, and it's crazy now because it does seem like Harper may have passed him. I mean, not that, I mean, Trout's struggling now. We know he's going to turn things around and be good. That, that, but like the fact that he, he's going to continually be compared to Harper throughout his career, and if Harper continues on this traject- tra- trajectory, he'll seem kind of, then he'll start to seem almost like a disappointment. Well, I think you're right. The two things that are hurting Mike Trout in that regard are, number one, the Angels haven't been that great, always been there. They have not won a single playoff game, and so that's hurting him a little bit. And also, he, he's been so good, but he's also, he just doesn't have the personality, I think, that Harper does. Harper's out there, like, talking about making baseball fun, and all Trout does is show up at the ballpark and hit and be awesome. And it's and he's done that almost from day one, and I think that's been a little bit of a, a detriment to him because, like, oh, yeah, we're used to that. You're great, which is really unfair to how great he's been. And as, as you and I have, have, have discussed, the Angels this year and long-term, they look like they could have some issues. And it's sort of, it's, it definitely could hurt the perception of Trout um, just because the team looks like it's not going to be very good for a few years, for the next few years. And, you know, it sort of reminds me, not a direct comparison, but because he was a higher gun at the time, but Alex Rodriguez and the Rangers, where he was the best player in baseball, like, unquestionably, but the team was terrible. Granted, that was a little different because A-Rod almost kind of got blamed for take, yeah. making too much money. But the point sort of remains the same. was like it was easy to overlook him just because the team wasn't very good, and he wasn't in October – so you kind of you almost forgot about his greatness. To I, think, I think we could probably agree that that fact cost Mike Trout at least one of those MVP awards. The fact that they made, no question, the fact that they didn't make the playoffs. Well, the I think the one year that he did win it was the year they made the playoffs. Right, and my favorite one about that is uh, with, with Miguel Cabrera. And yeah, the Tigers went to the playoffs, but they actually won fewer games than the Angels <laughs> did that year, yeah. and it just was a very tough division. Let's ask the exact same question on the pitching side, and I think this is going to be a little bit of a different conversation because it's super what have you done for me lately. You take no Cindergard over Clayton Kershaw. And I know that sounds insane, but man, Noah Syndergaard, 0.90 ERA right now, 37% strikeout rate. I mean, Syndergaard, it's, I mean, pitchers, it's, there, it's a different conversation just because, like, you, we, it's more common to see a pitcher who sort of just emerges for, out of, maybe not out of nowhere, but very quickly to suddenly be like, oh, this guy, things click for a young pitcher, it happens. Um, it happened for Clayton Kershaw earlier in his career where he had had a couple years where he was a little erratic and then suddenly, like, the guy who was the great prospect suddenly became, quote-unquote, Clayton Kershaw. And it seems like that's what's happening with Syndergaard now. Now becoming the Mets pitcher that everyone's, like, look, you know, circling on the calendar. And now maybe the pitcher in baseball that everyone's circling on the calendar. I think I could be talked into it for Harper over Trout because Harper's done this for over a year now. No, Syndergaard, you know, very good when he came up last year, of course. But really, we probably could have asked this question about Vince Velasquez a week ago. And then he went out and got lit up in his next start. Yeah, there's no question that, you know, Kershaw, the track record for him is is unquestioned. I think the, it's just more just about the fact that Syndergaard has so quickly leapt into that conversation. Whereas before it was like, okay, well, the Mets have Harvey and DeGrom. And Syndergaard's coming coming into the year with, like, the, 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 the shorter track record of the three. Uh, but he's instantly become, like... Three starts in, he's the Mets' ace, and it's—I don't think anyone would even—I don't think Terry Collins would 
No, I, I would have thought it would have been DeGrom, and obviously he's gotten off to a slow start this year. But I think for Syndergaard, it's really just the way he does it. He's got 14 of the 25-tracked 100-mile-an-hour pitches this year. He's got the top two. He's got four of the top five. He's throwing sliders at 95 miles an hour. I think it's just not only is he being successful, he just looks like he's doing it in a way we've never seen before because who throws that hard? I mean, the closest comp I can think of in recent memory um, is Justin Verlander when he sort of broke through and was kind of peaked. Because, I mean, at the time, he wasn't throwing as hard as Thor is, but he was throwing, like, a level – his velocity was a level above any other starting pitcher. Maybe, you know, two levels. I mean, Syndergaard might be two levels above. But Verlander, when he first came up and was first started to dominate, he sort of had that same 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 ability um, relative to other starting pitchers. So that's the closest comp I can remember. But we weren't tracking things quite as – quite as obsessively as we were then. Well, sure, it worked out well for Justin Verlander. Exactly. So that's, what, that's, that's what he becomes. I, I think that's fans will be okay I with mean, if he's, and the, the other thing about Verlander is that he stayed healthy. And right. that's always the, 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 always you know, the thing. Anthony Nicolò wrote a story about this, about um, Noah Syndergaard in spring training, where it's sort of like, he basically asked Noah Syndergaard, how do you pitch? You've never had a serious arm injury, and you throw harder than anyone. Sort of how do you, how do you, how do you mentally deal with that? Sort of knowing, having that in in the background, that it's sort of like you were the poster child for the kind of pitcher that would get hurt. Um, and, you know, Syndergaard said sort of like, you know, you can't succeed as a pitcher if you're going to think that. And maybe he's just a freak. You know, Verlander was the same way. Verlander missed some time last year. I think it was the first time he'd ever missed significant time. It was only even like a month. Uh, but for the most part, he was just sort of like, you know, your workhorse from day one. And, you know, for, for baseball, you sort of hope that that's the case because Syndergaard's fun. He sort of created this this – this excitement every time he takes the ball. Yeah, I can't wait to look back and say six weeks or so. It's like either be like, well, maybe, or God, I can't believe we asked ourselves that question. <laughs> so Matt, we just talked about a whole lot of interesting data from the early part of the season, and you know, as the data comes in, it's really it's interesting to look at it and say, you know, when do I trust it, right? Because you know, if you have two plate appearances, you're one for two, you're hitting 500. You're not really a 500 hitter in two plate appearances. No, you are not. No, you're not. And so there's a question for years and years is how much data do you have to have to be really confident that you're seeing the guys quote-unquote true talent, you know, and that holds true for contact rate, strikeouts, anything, and obviously now we're into StatCast, and so we're trying to figure this out for exit velocity, and uh, we have someone on the line with us who I think can really help us out with that. He wrote an interesting piece about that at Baseball Prospectus this week, Russell Carlton, excuse me. Russell, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Russell, you wrote a really interesting piece about exit velocity, both for hitters and pitchers, this week at Baseball Prospectus, and kind of getting into how much data we need on both of those ends to, to have it be stabilized. And before I ask you about that, I think we need to talk about what stabilization means, because I think there's a bis- misconception out there that when a number is stable, that means we know what that guy is. We have a concrete understanding, 100%, this is right at this point. And I think that's, that's not necessarily true. It's more about what the player has done and not necessarily what he will do going forward. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, to borrow someone else's phrase, it is a huge misperception, and it is a, um, basically, like every May, I see, oh, well, Russell Carlton wrote this article saying that, uh, you know, we've reached the stabilization point, and they pull apart some, you know, some guy who's having a hot start to, uh, uh, to April, and saying, oh, well, you know, this is who he is right now, he's, he's a new player, he's a brand new guy, and, you know, I, I, I look at it now and I um, I see that people thought that I was talking you know prospectively rather than retrospectively. If you want, you know, during April, we have a reasonable uh, idea of his true talent was you know whatever he's hitting, if he's Trevor Story or if he's uh, you know Dexter Fowler or whatever, and he's he's having a fantastic uh, month. And you want to look back and say, well, that's what he was in April. That's fine. 
but it's an assumption to assume that it's uh, uh, that you're you're going to still see that in May. It's not a bad assumption, but it's an assumption, and it's one that you got to be careful making. Now, I'm going back to something you wrote a few years ago, but you had kind of written about the different levels of, of plate appearances that you need for different kind of metrics. For example, maybe you only need 50 plate appearances to have a pretty good idea that a guy's swing percentage is going to hold up. Yeah. Uh, maybe you need 500 to get to on base percentage. And it's true that there's actually somewhere a full season of data may not even be enough. For example, batting average, you probably need more than that 600 or so plate appearances. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking about, and uh, the the law I use is the the more things it has to bounce off of, the less reliable it is. So, um, you know, swing percentage, the batter controls whether or not he's going to decide to swing. But then you get into, you know, uh, uh, what uh, what kind of uh, ball it is, ground ball, fly ball, line drive. Well, it's got to bounce off the bat. And then uh, you get into some of the other stuff, you know, is it an on-base event, I suppose, an on-base percentage and that's got to bounce off a fielder or it's got to bounce off a wall or something like that. So as you get further and further away from that, you know, initial pitch swing interaction, the the numbers get less and less reliable. And so some of our uh, our high and uh, you know, big number one number stats, you know, on base percentage batting average that we've reached for for years are actually the ones that are the least reliable because, you know, so much kind of goes into making the yes or no answer to you know was it a was it a hit was it a uh, was it an error was it a, you know a ground ball to third yeah I'm glad you brought that up because when you talk about say batting average uh, you know getting a hit there's a little bit of luck that goes in that obviously based on where the fielders are where the placement is uh, for exit velocity it's a little more pure I mean especially for for a, for a hitter I think because the hitter all they have to do is make contact and so what I got out of your article is that you think roughly 40 balls in play is is pretty close, and that's on the lower end of all these other stats we've talked about. Oh, that's insanely low. I mean, that's um, that's lower than than uh, than a lot of stuff I've seen in the past. And I mean, realistically, I mean, the the only thing that has happened is that the ball has struck the bat, and uh, and and now we have a good measure of you know how quickly that ball is leaving out of the uh, out of the batter's box. And, you know, it hasn't had a, ter- a chance to, you know, you might hit a screaming line driver drive right at the shortstop, and he catches it, and, you know, even though you hit a screamer, you're out, and you get to walk back to the dugout. Or you hit a little doink that just happens to fall over the second baseman's head, and, you know, that's just, that's baseball for you. But in terms of exit velocity, we know that those, that, you know, that kind of luck tends to even out over time. Um, so if you're looking for, you know, process instead of results, um, you can get a pretty good idea of what a person's exit velocity is going to be uh, after about 40 balls in play, which really isn't all that much. No, it's really not. I and mean, you, you talk about uh, including strikeouts and walks and whatnot, so maybe we're talking about 60, 70 plate appearances. That's yeah. what, like a month of, of play? That's... Yeah, something like that, about a month. And, I mean, by the, you know, by the end of April, uh, beginning of May, you can really start you know, looking back and going, wow, that, that guy was really – I mean, he really was putting a charge into the ball, not just, you know, it was a, it was a bit of a fluke. And going forward, maybe he continues that, uh, that, that talent. Maybe he has found something, but, you know, we have to throw that maybe in front of there. It's not a given. So with that in mind, Russell, based on what you've seen in the early going, are there any players who you've started to maybe change your opinion on, whether for the good or maybe even for the, for the bad? <laughs> um, you know, the... Um, the one that has has always kind of been um, in the background there uh, was Luis Albuena um, is is up near the top of that uh, uh, of that uh, exit velocity chart, and um, he's you know he's always kind of been um, 
um, he's he's always uh, you know been the kind of guy where you're like oh you know Valpoena you know and you don't really uh, um, get much of a you know nobody's really had much of a read on him and he's kind of flown under the radar. You know the other guy who's um, who's out there is Ryan Howard uh, of all people um, has had a fantastic month and you know the, as much as we you know we drag down on the uh, um, on the contract extension that he signed he's you know he's hitting the ball pretty well. Um, and that you know that at least has uh, uh, has some amount of uh, of hope that maybe he can come back to at least something of what he once was. You know, I'm I'm so glad. Sorry, sorry, Matt, that you brought up Luis Valbuena because I know uh, you didn't have the opportunity to hear the discussion we had before we we got you on the mm-hmm. phone. We were actually talking about how the Astros have the most barrels. That's our favorite mm-hmm. term in baseball, and we've defined that as 100 miles an hour uh, between 10 and 30 degree launch angle. That's that's basically the best thing you can do as a hitter. I know mm-hmm. Altuve and Tyler White, like we talked about, are the top two, and, and Valbuena's up there. So it's it's yeah. fascinating to me that you brought him up. Uh, yeah. Let's go to the other side. Let's talk about pitchers. And so mm-hmm. you found some really interesting results there. I think you know the rough answer there is maybe 50 balls in play, but you actually found that it, it didn't get more reliable the more data that you got. And I, I, I was kind of interested by that because that's not really what you'd expect. Yeah, it's a weird finding, and it was something that I, um, when I looked at, I you know I tapped at it a couple times and reran it and. You know, so, you know, I figured, oh, maybe I maybe I messed up on my code or something. And so I looked and I said, well, no, that's really what's going on. And what happens is that usually as you get more data on something, the reliability goes up and up and up and up and up. And, and, and you know, and, and that's the the more you have a chance to really see, okay, this is what it is. And with pitchers, that wasn't the case. You know, it kind of went up for, you know, 40, 50, 60 70 plate appearances, not plate appearances, but balls in play, uh, pitchers' exit velocity allowed. But then as you kept adding uh, plate appearances uh, to that number, the reliability didn't go up. It kind of tended to fall back to earth and or plateau. And, you know, that's kind of a weird finding. And, you know, trying to figure out, okay, well, what does that mean? And I, I said, well, you know, that means that as we're adding on data from June, it doesn't match very well with the data that we saw in April, and it doesn't match, uh, and, and the reliability is telling us so. I mean, it's not completely a mismatch, but it's not, it's not kind of, it seems like we're not measuring the same thing as we once were, which means that, you know, from April to June, a pitcher might be, you know, a slightly different or a very different uh, pitcher uh, in terms of his talent. And, you know, it's something that we don't usually account for, um, you know, we have this idea that, you know, a guy is the same guy at least over the course of a year and that there are, you know, there are only minor variations around that uh, and that anything we see in variation is luck. Well, you know, it's possible that we've been doing this all wrong, that uh, that pitchers just change so much from even month to month and that it's really hard to sustain being, a, you know, a high-level pitcher. You know, I was reading uh, some conversation about this and, and something I thought that was really interesting, and tell me what you think about this, is that the correct answer quote unquote is actually the higher number for the pitchers it seems like it's less reliable because when you look at a pitcher in a very small sample uh, he's probably facing the same team and same group of hitters a lot and that could introduce some bias whereas yeah. a hitter if he had you know the same amount of balls in play it's probably over a larger variety of pitchers and ballparks and teams uh, and that was interesting to me and I don't know if the math backs that up but you know do you think that's plausible yeah, I think that is, and I think at very you know, very small sample sizes, and I think I like I found that you know there was a weird little blip when you're talking about ten balls in play, and you go up, and then you go up to twenty, and there was a, a weird blip in there, 
And somebody pointed out, well, you know, they're probably just facing the same team for those first ten balls. So it's not, you know, it, it, it's might, it might just be that they happen to face one team that was just lighting them up. You know, hey, you face the Cubs. You know, we all have bad days against the Cubs. And, you know, that's uh, that, that might be it. Um, and, you know, some of it, uh, um, but, you know, this is as you're getting further and further along where we saw this uh, effect was as you're getting into, you know, 100, 110, 120. So by that point, you faced a couple of different teams, you know, probably weighted toward your division because of the unbalanced schedule. But you're at least seeing, you know, several different teams. And some of that starts to shake out a little bit. And, well, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that I, I think that we could say there's enough of a sample and enough sample that it's being drawn from um, that, uh, that that it's just such a weird finding that I don't think there's any other explanation for it other than, you know, there's something weird going on with the talent level of the pitchers that we've never really considered that, you know, it's, it might just be changing. Now, Russell, as we've seen, like the, the speed off the bat, the exit velocity is is controlled mostly by the hitter, his strength, his bat speed, et cetera. I think it's like roughly 80% or so is generated by the batter. That's a, that's a ballpark, I think, uh, give or take. Does that mean we should expect the pitcher? The pitchers will actually need longer to stabilize because of that uh, phenomenon? No, actually, what I think that you know that that has been that was reported by uh, Rob Arthur of 5:38, um, and he said you know it's about a five to one uh, uh, batter to pitcher ratio. Um, but you know, I talked to him um, behind the scenes, and I you know, were talking some of the you know the gory details of of what he did um, mathematically. And I said, well, you know, what if uh, what if instead of uh, of assuming that the pitcher's you know true talent level is is consistent, then uh, you know, what if uh, it was it was variable over uh, you know even over short periods of time? And he said, well, you know, that would be interesting. And and we kind of we weren't entirely sure where that would uh, where that would have taken things. You know, I've, I've done some other stuff in the past and, and found that, you know, the batter's in a little bit more control of what happens in a plate appearance than a pitcher is. Um, and so, I mean, that sounds about right, uh, that 5-1 to one, uh, uh, number. You know, maybe there's room for it to wiggle a little bit. But I think that, yeah, you're going to see, just, you know, the batter has a little bit more control over what happens over an individual uh, plate appearance. It's interesting to, to look at pitchers and batters and who has control over what because obviously you've been in that baseball perspectives for many years and one of the most famous baseball perspectives articles was 15 or 20 years ago I think was Boris McCracken with the uh, with the, the dips theory that pitchers don't have any control over their batting average on balls in play and uh, I think for a long time that was kind of taken as gospel and then now that we have pitcher exit velocity it may be trending towards that not being 100% true, just in the sense that if you look at the, the leaders in pitcher exit velocity last year, you have Kershaw and Arietta and Keuchel and Chris Sale and all these guys who are, who are outstanding. So now that you've had a chance to dig into the data, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think in over the last 15 years, I think that even some of the stuff, even before StatCast was coming out, you know, there was the, the, um, the idea there with, you know, pitchers have no control. Yeah, but actually no there's you know there's a, a couple of things you need to think about and i think now we're just getting better measurements to kind of put some of the things that we had you know less less uh less data resolution in the past to um to really look into i think that the idea of you know pitchers have no control um it it just isn't something that that serious people really take it as gospel anymore it's it's that, you know, batters have a lot of control. Pitchers may not have as much as we used to think. But, you know, it doesn't mean that the pitcher has nothing to do in this, in this interaction. 
Um, he may, uh, you know, there may be guys who are just so good at limiting exit velocity and inducing weak contact um, that, you know, they really can be dips beaters. They can really keep, you know, everybody assumes, oh, you know, your, your Babbitt's going to go to 300. And there are some guys that just never quite seem to get bitten by that bug. And, you know, maybe there really is a talent for it. And it may not be a talent that can be, you know, that, that uh, will, will be there at all times or that will completely overwhelm the, uh, the batter's contribution. But it's enough that it, it keeps, uh, um, it'll keep guys uh, in the Cy Young race, basically. Russell, final question for you. Um, yeah. you obviously, you've been at, at Perspectives for a while, but you spent several years earlier this decade uh, consulting for the Cleveland Indians as a stats mm -hmm. analyst. And I, I'm curious, uh, you know, one of the things that's so exciting about StatCast is this is all public, but I think we've all known the teams have had some similar information to this privately. Five years ago or so when you were with Cleveland, was this the kind of information that you had available? Was it used? What was it like kind of behind those doors? Well, um, when I worked with Cleveland, um, you know, I, I, uh, I worked mostly with um, with data that was was publicly available at the time, um, occasionally they you know we, they would let me peek behind the curtain and, and send me a couple of things, but um, most of uh, most of what I did was uh, was public stuff. Um, you know, in terms of you know teams have had access to you know what was kind of the precursor to this was HitFX. Uh, they have been using that data. That's something that um, you know the teams are probably a couple of years ahead of the. Um, of the general public in terms of having had access to these types of raw numbers and, and what to do with them. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's probably a case where there are, are things that, you know, I'm writing now that I think are so great that uh, somebody who works for a team is probably sitting there looking and going, oh, yeah, yeah, we knew that three years ago. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you know, I, I pat myself on the back, but, you know, I'm really just kind of running behind the pack. So that's yeah, okay. That, that's my greatest fear. Everything I write, some, I'm going to think, oh, this is great. People are going to say, Mike, great job. And then somebody I know on a team will be like, oh, cool, welcome to 2011. You've yeah. almost caught up well, with the rest of okay. us. That's <laughs> okay. That's okay. Uh, great stuff. Russell Cartland from Baseball Perspectives. Follow him on Twitter at PizzaCutter4, and you can ask him why that name exists. I think it's fascinating. Russell, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Matt Myers here joining with me. Thanks to our guest, Russell Cartland of Baseball Perspectives. Catch you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.